Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. When you think of the classic Beatles shows, what, what springs to mind? Is it Hamburg or the Cavern Club? Is it Candlestick Park or Shea Stadium? Is it the four of them playing with Billy Preston on the roof? Or is it that time they rocked the roundhouse in Camden? What do you think, Stephen? Next to their appearance at Nairn Regal Hall, the roundhouse is my favourite <laughs> Beatle gig. Now, we don't tend to do counterfactuals on this podcast, but this isn't really a counterfactual. This is a a series of gigs that should have happened at the end of 1968 in the Roundhouse in Camden in London. And of course, there's a big what if attached to it. But you can kind of see, even though it doesn't actually happen, spoiler alert, um, you can see how it actually is the invisible connection between all things White Album 68 and all things Get Back 69. A linkage between those two things. And it seems insane that they were planning to do this. And how early in 1968 this starts to be talked about. Yeah, and it, and it is publicised, and we, we shall talk through the whole story of that. And it did seem to be a very viable, very real concern. Yes, I mean, they're constantly, throughout the last quarter of 1968 talking about this and and press statements are going out and the NME and Melody Maker are sort of vying with each other to produce the definitive statement as to when this is going to take place and where it's going to be, what it's going to be, who's going to be on the bill. So where does the seed get planted? Because if, if you watch Peter Jackson's Get Back and they have that kind of nice bio bit at the start, they seem to kind of indicate that it's the the Hey Jude video, perhaps, that gives them this notion of an audience, a television studio, colour videotape. That seems to be the starting point. So they're working with Michael Lindsay Hogg, who will obviously go on to helm the Get Back, Let It Be project. But this idea of appearing again in front of an audience, you know, they have an assembled common people around them uh, (laughs) for the making of the Hey Jude video. And this seems to go quite well. And they're sort of larking around in between sort of the actual formal takes. And this seems to spark the idea, you know, particularly with Paul, yeah, we, we could do this. We could, you know, people aren't so bad. You know, they're not going to put us in a cage in Candlestick Park. Where, <laughs> but we can do something. And this idea of, you know, a one-off show or maybe two or three shows in a single location, they're not talking about touring. It's a residency. And again, mm. 
the Beatles are inventing this idea of, you know, we're going to sell out the O2 for 20 nights and we'll just stay here and people can come to see us or Kate Bush at the Hammersmith Odeon or whatever it is. People can come and see us rather than us tour. I do like the imagination or the the, the possible idea of something that is in that space between the Hey Jude video and what we got with Get Back slash Let It Be. You know, a kind of multicoloured TV spectacular and Hey Jude and Revolution are kind of two sides of a coin and there was this kind of vogue happening, you know, the, the, the monkeys also did, were doing a TV special at the time. There was a vogue for music on television and BBC Two was in colour and they'd kind of dipped their toe in the water, you could argue, with Magical Mystery Tours. So it's not yeah. beyond the realm of possibility that they could have pulled something out of the hat. Yeah, Magical Mystery Tour is interesting because it is a forerunner to that idea of, you know, long form videos that we get when MTV arrives. But given that it was so badly received, (laughs) um, there is perhaps a sense that, you know, they wanted to rectify that or they wanted to do something more in a traditional giving a show sort of idea, which I suspect is what the BBC and what the audience who were watching at Christmas 67 thought they were going to get. Now, when this show kind of breaks in The Enemy, dated November the 9th, 1968, and they've got a headline story, Beatles three live December concerts. The Beatles are to give three live concerts in London next month. Mary Hopkin and Jackie Lomax will also appear. Venue for the performance will be London's Chalk Farm Roundhouse for three successive nights starting December 15th or 16th. The shows will benefit charity and a one-hour TV spectacular may be built around the show. So that's the start of November, about six weeks out from what they're... Yeah. You know, what their deciding date should be. And uh, yeah, it, it that seems like a very concrete story. They have quotes from Apple executives. Yeah, so this is an absolutely definitive statement. They will give three live concerts in London next month. And as you say, it's a chap called Jeremy Banks, who is an Apple executive. And he's giving the statement to the NME saying, these concerts will be a mind bender. The Beatles' new album is the incredible achievement of five months' work. And they naturally plan to centre their appearances around these 30 tracks. Negotiations for the Roundhouse are at an early stage, but will be completed this week. Jeremy Banks is an interesting backstory. He is an executive at Apple. He started off as an associate editor at Queen magazine in 1963, and he was responsible for setting up the Beatles photo shoots in 63 with Norman Parkinson. He moves Hmm. to Apple. He gets an art design credit on the White Album alongside Richard Hamilton. So I imagine he's sort of maybe gathering up photographs and sort of compiling things. But he is most famous as being the Apple employee to whom John gave the film (laughs) of the Two Virgins cover shoot and said, you just nip down the chemist and get those developed. (laughs) So, So Jeremy Banks, perhaps he took those photos of John in the nip that are in the White Album collage. Could be, could be. That's where John is wearing the same necklace. And not much else. Mm. I like yes. that you've been you've been you know looking at that collage with a magnifying glass. <laughs> well, yes, you, you'd need a magnifying glass to look at something. Anyway, um, this would have been the first, uh, as the Enemy story says, their first time performing in the UK since the Enemy Pull concert of nineteen sixty six, and. They say in the article that they were told about the plans for the Beatles at the Roundhouse in September. So September, which would kind of correlate with the timeline of having just done the Hey Jude video, um, would make sense. But they are busy in September 1968. It's not like they're twiddling their thumbs trying to decide to do a TV show. They're in the middle of the White Album sessions. 
So, um, yeah, September the 14th, 1968, Paul says to Melody Maker, the Beatles will be doing a live show later in the year. And it's a sort of casual throwaway remark in the manner of, oh, yeah, the Beatles have a new single coming out in 2023. (laughs) But they are in the middle of recording. So that same day that that quote is published, they're recording I Will. They're doing overdubs on Glass Onion. So they're in the thick of recording this album, again, under pressure. Um, The recording under pressure. I thought that was Queen and David Bowie. Sorry. I see what you did. Anyway, (laughs) but you would wonder between the four of them, had there been an actual decision or a discussion while they're in the thick of, you know, month three of White Album sessions or month five, I think at that point, um, was there a decision amongst them to to actually go live or is Paul going a bit rogue again or is it kind of half-baked and it's like, well, we'll just book it and and turn up kind of thing. It's, It's hard to say really. It's, it's hard to say uh, that the two main music magazines of the day are the NME and Melody Maker. And George is interviewed by NME that comes out on the 21st. And they, they say, you know, will the Beatles ever play live again? And George says, it just depends. The thing I'd like to do most of all is play resident in a club, not to go touring because I didn't like all that traveling and playing and all that sort of thing. But if we were to do a live show, I prefer to do it like at the top 10 in Hamburg for three months and just play in the one place for three months. Then we could get rid of the myth once and for all of the Beatles being something apart from everybody else. So he's less definitive. You know, Paul is saying they will be doing a live show later in the year. George is just sort of reminiscing about mm. the top 10. He They always liked the sound system in the top 10. It had built-in echo, and uh, George's during the Get Back sessions will we'll refer back to that being the best place they ever played live in terms of uh, the PA, you know? And what do you think he means by the myth of the Beatles being something apart from everyone else? Is it the myth that they're just a band like everyone else? Is that what he's trying to get at? I think so. I mean, this is sort of, I think, a continuation of George's feeling that, uh, you know, hey man, we're all we're all the same, and You've got to look inside yourself. And his resentment at the fact that the Beatles are put on a pedestal. And Mm -hmm. if you look at the shift from 67 to 68, even in terms of the way the Beatles dress, you know, in 1967, early 68, they're all dressed up in their finery. They're wearing these Carnaby Street clothes. But by 68, by the time of the White Album, that is starting to change. They're dressing down. There's the sort of anti-fashion uh, look, you know, particularly those photographs on the interior of the White Album. You know, only Ringo is wearing the sort of frilly shirt and the blue <laughs> blaze. Everyone else is is dressing down. And, the, you know, the Stones will do that. The Who will do that. There's a shift in 68. I know you don't like the word, a more authentic Oh, gosh, you said it. That's that's uh, uh, Webster's Dictionary Word of the Year for 2023, believe it or not. Authentic? Authentic, which I th- I'd assumed it had been in the dictionary for years, but it, it, it's, it's having a revival. Is, is anything authentic in 2023? I thought the whole point of 2023 <laughs> was everything was artificial. Well, yes, I'm, I'm enjoying the artificialness. Um, I, I, I learned today about the genre of AI-created vocalist music as well. That was interesting. Anyway, um... So the Roundhouse, uh, if you live in London, you know what the Roundhouse is. Um, But back in 1968, the Roundhouse certainly has its credentials, but it's not even a concert venue, we should point out. No, it's a railway 
thing. <laughs> engine shed. It's an what? engine shed. It's a glorified engine shed. And it yes. had a it had a revolving turntable so the trains could drive in. Yep. And then you would turn the turntable and they could drive out the same way that they came in. You know, this is the kind of thing that I find hugely interesting I and exciting. Knew we, <laughs> we, we're now going to have like a 15 minute diversion on mm, locomotion, mm, locomotion through the trains. <laughs> it's in Chalk Farm, which is at the north end of Camden Town in London, England. And it's a, a building that dates back to about 1846-1847, right in the right in the middle of the famine. And it was built um, by the London and Northwestern Railway. Um, and it's, it's a circular building. That's the, the thing about it. Because it has this turntable, it design, it's designed that a train can just rotate in the middle of it. It's a love. That's why it's called the Roundhouse. I was just going to say, this, this, the clue is in the name. <laughs> um, um, but it kind of stopped being used. It was a warehouse for a number of years and then it became a, a listed building after World War II uh, in 1954. Um, but it becomes, a, it kind of graduates in the 60s into being a performing arts venue. Yeah, so it's acquired by the Greater London Council and uh, they open it in 1964 as a sort of performing arts venue. The first big concert is 15th October 1966, the All Night Rave, in which Soft Machine, Pink Floyd, and uh, they appear, and it was the launch of the International Times, an underground newspaper, it says here. And uh, they also had, you know, had their first major concert right at the end of 1966, a night called, <clears throat> checks notes, a Psychedelia Mania, Psychedelica Mania, uh, which was headlined uh, by The Who. So it's got its underground credentials, North London and, you know, Tottenham Court Road just down the road as well, has the UFO Club and all that stuff is, is in the zone. Um, Who else was playing that night? Go on, apart from The Who. The Move. The Move. Hey! Um, the Move. It, was, it wasn't that trendy then. The Move were smashing televisions on stage. It was all very exciting. When I first read about the, the Roundhouse, it was closed down, because it did close in 1983. And um, I remember visiting London in the 90s and going to look at the Roundhouse. It was just kind of sitting forlornly in Chalk Farm. Um, but thankfully, it's had a reprieve. It's been reopened uh, in 2006, and it's now, a, a, again, a thriving, live, it's a brilliant venue. I saw Nick Mason there in 2019 doing Saucerful of Secrets. Hmm. Virtually identical <laughs> experience to what uh, you would have got in 1966, 1967, yeah. except it was a very nice bar, and uh, it was all very gentrified. More people were on statins. Yeah, there were a lot of statins, a lot of statins. A lot of statins um, in the house. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was trying to think of what gigs I had seen there. I saw a very poignant gig with Ray Davies there in 2007, um, which was filmed for the BBC Electric Proms when they used to do that. Uh, that was a wonderful gig. I could have sworn I'd seen other things there, but that was the only one that kind of sprung to mind. But what we should say about the Roundhouse is that the bricks of the Roundhouse have heard something that no other Beatles fan has ever heard. Something that every Beatles fan has wanted to hear, which is... Carnival of Light. Carnival of Light. So the Roundhouse plays a pivotal role in the Beatles lore. So I, I guess if they're fishing around for a venue, they know the Roundhouse quite well. Do you think if we got a brick from the Roundhouse, we could extract <laughs> the vibrations... I'm getting on the phone to Peter Jackson. This sounds right up his street. Peter, can you get Carnival of Light out of a brick and see what he says? I think he'd be prepared to give it a go. 
I think he would, you know. I mean, the truth is he could send us any old gubbins and say, yep, that's Carnival of Light. You can see him saying, but we have discovered previously undiscovered bricks from which we have been able to recreate (laughs) Carnival of Light. Oh, imagine that if you could get a, a brick out of, you know, John's house or George's house and get all the demos. Anyway, I'm going off. We, we, we're obviously making the assumption that everybody knows what Carnival of Light is. But let's talk about Carnival of Light for a second, because it's kind of this holy grail of unheard Beatle music, that it's this avant-garde track. And it was commissioned for an event called the Million Volt Light and Sound Rave, which was held in the Roundhouse over two consecutive weekends, the 28th of January and the 4th of February. 67. And we know precious little about it, really. As far as we know, it's simply a sound collage, so there's no structure to it, there's no musical structure to it. At one point we know, I think it's John is running around shouting Barcelona, uh, for some reason, I don't know. Anyone that has heard it, and there are precious few people except for the people at that event, and I imagine they don't have... They have a pretty hazy memory of what they were doing at that event, I, for one reason or another. Would they have even known that that's what they were listening to? There was a, you know, a message, you know, it was mentioned on the poster for the event that there was music composed by Paul McCartney. Um, but I don't think people would have necessarily realised that this sound collage playing in the background was, was The Beatles. It's interesting that it was composed by Paul McCartney. That's what the poster says. There you go. <laughs> It's not a Beatles track then. <laughs> well, what is a Beatles track in 2023? Let's said. not go there. That, yeah, okay, fine. Um, yeah, it's... it's uh, yeah, Mark Lewis, and the first time I read about it, like many of us, was in the Complete Beatles Recording Sessions book in 1988, and he talks that there's a track with distorted lead guitar, there's another track with distorted hypnotic drums, another track with the sound of a church organ, various effects and voices, John and Paul screaming dementedly, Barcelona, are you all right, blah, 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 and then a fourth track of various indescribable sound effects with heaps of echo and manic tambourine. And then at the end, Paul McCartney says in a very echo-laden voice, uh, can we hear it back now? And... Uh, yeah, it's it. They basically they're they're in the middle of recording Sergeant Pepper, and Paul just sort of says, "Hey guys, can we just take a few minutes to to have a freak out?" This is the start of what Ian McDonald describes as their sort of lazy anything will do period, you know, um, <laughs> which is really sort of between Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour. But uh, I I think it's one of those things that, like the Holy Grail, probably best left unheard, would you say? I mean, it can only be a disappointment after all these years. I mean, it's it's no now and then, that's for sure. Um, no. You know, if there is, <laughs> now, you know, we've been told that this is the last Beatles song, but there's always Carnival of Light. I, of course, I would like to hear it as, as a curio, but, you know, people have said that, uh, you know, there, there's, there's been recollections of it, which says, you know, the, the piece... Uh, was rather a mess, no coherence to it all. The people who heard the recording were underwhelmed and, uh, you know, people were expecting maybe proper songs and music and he kind of sends this lazy scrap of tape. But it's not for want of trying that Paul hasn't tried repeatedly to put this out there to show his bona fides that he was almost two years before Revolution 9, he was doing it. (laughs) <laughs> he was the he was listening do you know Stephen he was listening to Stockhausen um, and uh, he was hanging out in London while the others were out in the stockbroker belt did you know that? well you should talk about that more 
Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was, you know, slated, I think, for Anthology 2, isn't that right? And then someone Correct. put his foot down. George. Old George. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, we all got our hopes up again in 2017 with the pepper box and it didn't happen. Um, but, you know. Clearly it was something that was, I don't even want to say composed. It's something that was put together for a specific event. And I can sort of understand whether it's George Martin or George Harrison or Ringo or I was thinking, well, this this was never intended to be given a commercial release. It was not recorded to a particular standard. The fact that it says on the poster, Paul McCartney, it's a bit like Goodbye. That isn't really an official Beatles track at all. It, uh, it is now. It's got their name on it. But I know I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. So, yes, it's, uh, I don't know, will we ever get a break and hear Carnival of Light? I don't know, but you're going to get a break right now. Seamless. Yes. End of part one. Intermission. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So the Roundhouse is in its sights, you, you know, hothouse of underground and cool and groovy music, which, uh, you know, its credentials are pretty solid by um, 1968. So we, we get back to the enemy and the enemy are still touting, you know, one week after the initial announcements that uh, this gig is still happening. Yes. So on the 16th of November, the, the enemy confirmed four and a half thousand seats at the Beatles concerts and but they do say at press time this week the Beatles had taken no further decision on details of their three concerts at London's Roundhouse starting December 15th or 16th a world exclusive in last week's NME but the shows will definitely take place at the venue but seat prices and the charity involved have not been finalised. P.S. George Harrison has not renewed his three-year contract with Northern Songs. <laughs> yeah, it's all happening. And it's been confirmed by Derek Taylor. So again, Apple are all on board. Michael Lindsay Hogg gets mentioned for the first time, who produced the recent Beatle clip for Hey Jude. So it's all coming together. And that the uh, roundhouse has been booked between December the 14th and the 23rd. And there is that side point that Lord Beeching is involved. Yes, not appearing as a support act, but they report that Lord Beeching has had already had talks with John Lennon and Paul McCartney at Apple's London offices, and it is thought they would like to use his business experience to streamline their company activities. However, he said this week that if he agrees to join Apple, they would be on a part-time basis only. The thing that I find interesting is the timing of that announcement. So that is in November 1968. They are already thinking... Mm. 
we've got to streamline, we've got to get, you know, we've got to get rid of the dead wood, get get this turned around into a more efficient uh, business sense. And this, this chimes with something that appears in the Mal Evans diaries, that Paul is determined in sort of September, October 1968, he's letting people go and he's trying to de- streamline the business. So all of this predates the involvement of Mr. Klein. Mm. Now, we mentioned Lord Beeching briefly in our Klein episodes. He was uh, famous for shutting down loads of Britain's railways in the 1960s. He wrote the Beeching Report, and so railways were cut by something like 70%, and railways that we could all do with nowadays in the 21st century. But he wanted to do the same for Apple and cut off its tendrils. I I've got lost in my metaphor there, but you know where I'm coming from. He was a man who could wield an axe. This is in the air long before Klein line uh, ever arrives yep. but the roundhouse Derek Taylor has confirmed that the roundhouse has been booked so it's in the diary apparently now was the roundhouse always the number one choice well that was on the 16th of November if we wind back to, to September um, in September the 26th Apple actually book the Royal Albert Hall, for several days in December for a possible live performance by the Beatles. So they're looking at the Albert Hall in September. Um, And again, just to put all of that in context, they're still working on the White Album that day that that comes out on the 26th. They're mixing Happiness is a Warm Gun. So they, you know, the Beatles have appeared at the Albert Hall before. They First, uh, their first appearance was at the BBC Swinging Sound of 63 event, and they were halfway down the bill, which included Del Shannon, the Springfields, and who can forget, Matt Monroe. They sing uh, Misery, um, which is great. Yeah, so Please Please Me, followed by Misery. They were supposed to play From Me to You, Thank You Girl, but they then went with Twist and Shout, before segueing into From Me To You, and then they performed Mac the Knife. Well, Hmm. they appeared at the end when everybody sang Mac the Knife. That's rather good. Now, the Royal Albert Hall has kind of an odd interaction with uh, rock stars and allowing rock concerts. Uh, Certainly, if memory serves, I think it was Frank Zappa who managed to get rock music banned from the Royal Albert Hall from about 1969 onwards for a number of years. The Nice burnt an American flag. Ah. On stage, and that was uh, led to an absolute ban um, on rock music at the Albert Hall for a considerable number of years. But the Beatles have a history, so it's not altogether clear that the Royal Albert Hall would have been particularly happy to have the Beatles play there in 1968 because of something that happened in 1967. Well, the Albert Hall is mentioned in A Day in the Life and yes. that we know how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall. In 2015, papers were discovered in their archive saying that the council who run the venue had written to the Beatles in 1967 to object, quote, in the strongest conceivable terms to being named in a day in the life. So apparently this correspondence was unearthed while they were clearing an old archive room. And it was a letter to Brian Epstein, the then chief executive, Ernest O'Fallopar, that's a fantastic name, told the band that the wrong-headed assumption that there are 4,000 holes in our auditorium threatened to destroy its business overnight. John now, Lennon... I need, to, I need to interrupt you there. Okay. Because, do you know, uh, Ophalopar is a great name, but if I told you it was an anagram, 
could you figure out the anagram? It's an April Fool. I was going for the big reveal at the end. Anyway. Ah, damn it. Uh. <laughs> I thought you'd put it in the notes. <laughs> and I was like, aha, I know this is an April Fool. Damn it. <laughs> we, can leave all, we can leave all that in. We can leave all that in. <laughs> I thought for once I've noticed a mistake. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway. Yes. Anyway. Okay. So the, the, we've let light in on magic. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it is a funny story because it, 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 I have to admit, I first read it a while back um, uh, online somewhere. Somebody had posted it in the Reddit group saying, this is an amazing find. And I was reading it going, this isn't, this doesn't seem right because they did reproduce the letter on a bit of Albert Hall paper. And the, the thing that kind of threw me when I read it was they... Um, it was a letter written to uh, Brian after he had died or something like that. Or they, 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 so I was like, no, I, I don't really think that's true. So, um, but uh, yes, it is a good joke. Sorry. It is a good joke and it is on their, their, but it is on their website. It is still there. That is true. Yes. It is still there. So they say that uh, John Lennon refused to apologize when he wrote back to Prince Albert and friends. And this was an action which resulted in a ban on the song ever being performed at the Royal Albert Hall. So, yes, it's, uh, it, it is quite amusing that uh, they, they, they kind of posted this up and it is still fooling people to this day. I thought, I thought I'd uncovered it. Who broke the ban? Who did break the ban, Stephen? Which I hope it was one of the rock greats. It was. It was Millie Vanilli in 1989. <laughs> and do you, know, do you know who accompanied them? Well, I know because you've told me, and I find it hard to believe. Jeff Lynn. Um, is this an awards show or something? What? How are they? And even more weirdly, PJ Harvey. Now, is PJ Harvey? What is PJ Harvey doing in 1989 at the Royal Albert Hall? Do we know? I think she is also partaking in the April Fool's joke. Ah. <laughs> 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 okay, so I was got. God damn it! I have got my revenge. Oh, Cockcroft reigns triumphant. Crumples notes to the ground. <laughs> um, but but now, moving on, Alan Ginsberg swiftly on, <laughs> saving face. Um, Paul is not a stranger to the Royal Albert Hall. There's the um, there's his interactions with Alan Ginsberg, friend of the show. Not really, but you know. He is now. This, I have to say, for all that we put Alan Ginsberg in the Donovan and Cilla Black basket, <laughs> um, this is a very, very cool story. And this is a song or a poem, I suppose, called The Ballad of the Skeletons, which was first published in 1995. And uh, Ginsberg said, I started it because of all that inflated bull about family values, the contract with America, Newt Gingrich, and all the loudmouth stuff on talk radio and Rush Limbaugh and all those guys. It seemed obnoxious and stupid and kind of sub-contradictory, so I figured I'd write a poem to knock it out of the ring. And he writes this poem. And in October 1995, he visits Paul McCartney at their home in England. And we get a classic Allen Ginsberg. No party like an Allen Ginsberg party. He recites the <laughs> Ballad of the Skeletons while uh, one of Paul's daughters films the whole thing. And I can think of nothing worse than that. You know, somebody recites a very long poem <laughs> and the poem it stands, is, yeah. the poet's standing there in front of you, um, reciting it into uh, your face, basically. But anyway. Yeah, so he uh, he's, he's, he performs it for McCartney. McCartney's quite, um, 
you know, taken by it. And Ginsburg is planning to perform it at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. So there's two versions of the story. So Ginsburg says that while he was visiting Paul McCartney and reciting the poem, you know, he said he was looking for a guitarist to perform it with him. And McCartney says, hey, why don't you try me? I love your poem. Great man. And, you know, Paul's version is slightly different where he says, you know, he was trying to give him some ideas as to, oh, you should call Dave Gilmore. Oh, you should call Dave Stewart. And eventually the penny drops and Paul gets in touch with Alan Ginsburg and says, okay, I'll do it, um, which seems a little bit more truthful. Yes, I think so. And Ginsburg would say it's the closest I'm ever going to come to being in the Beatles, which I think is probably true. Absolutely true. Yeah. But Paul does actually turn up at the Albert Hall and does perform with Ginsburg. And the footage of that is on YouTube. So Ginsburg would say he showed up at 5 p.m. for the sound check. He had bought a box for his family. He got all his kids together, four of them, his wife, sat through the whole evening of poetry, and we didn't say who my accompanist was going to be. We introduced him at the end of the evening, and the roar went up on the floor, and we knocked out the song. He said, if I ever get around to recording it, let him know. So he volunteered. We made a track, sent it to him. He added maracas and drums. Uh, It gave it a skeleton, a shape, and also organ. He was trying to get that effect of Al Cooper on the early Dylan and guitar, so he put a lot of work into it. And then we got it back in time just in time for Philip Glass to fill in his arpeggios on piano. You can buy it. It's an EP. And it's it's on the Flaming Pie box set, you know. Um, skeletons don't have organs, is what I was just thinking to myself there. But that's A pretty- medical joke. <laughs> yes, boom, boom. Um, but what happens in, you know, they are still in this very busy phase. They are trying to finish the White Album. It, by the time we get to mid-October of 1968, it's being reported that, you know, the Royal Albert Hall isn't happening, that the Roundhouse might be happening. These are the the current murmurs. Um, But this is before the big announcement in November that the story is that Paul is being accosted while they're recording the White Album and the news is leaking out. This this appears on the 12th of October 1968. So just for context, they have just finished Savoy Truffle. The evening of the 12th, they will spend mixing the tracks and the next day, John will record Julia, which ends the sessions. But Paul McCartney is sort of doorstep and uh, he said, what is probable is that before anything else, we will do our own TV show in which we perform the numbers from the new album. The enemy then said, Mary Hopkin may take part and people like Jackie Lomax and James Taylor, who are both Apple artists. It is now virtually, absolutely definite that the Beatles will appear live again, either by Christmas or earlier in the new year. But then, in capital letters, they say, but Paul wishes to stress that no definite arrangements have yet been made and that a concert or other show, if it takes place, could conceivably be at any London venue. Now, Paul is sort of caveating things furiously at this point. It did occur to Mm. me that at this point in October... Yoko is four and a half months pregnant. John is preoccupied. Yes. But the article does point towards the, you know, uh, not a 1968 word, synergy, that they have Apple artists on tap. And actually, there is something to be said for what could have been done. You know, we know we end up with Get Back and They're on the Roof and it's the Beatles. But the notion of a television special that has the Beatles, but actually is also a gateway uh, to to show people what Apple has in store, is a very tantalising one when you think about who they could have put in front of the camera. 
Yes. I mean, they've got an entire roster developing here of, of acts that they want to showcase, um, who have product coming out. They're, they're in the middle of recording albums. And, you know, with, with Hey Jude and with the White Album coming out, it's ideal. It's an ideal showcase. But one of my theories is that Apple in 2023 has sort of is no longer good at managing these big events at these sort of. But I think if you look at the way this is being handled in 68, they were never very good at handling this. <laughs> so we've got this sort of NME exclusive on the 12th of October on the same day. Melody Maker is saying there is a mystery developing about the Beatles projected live concert they want to play. Uh, this was exclusively revealed in Melody Maker three weeks ago, but a report last week said the group had booked uh, the Royal Albert Hall. This report was firmly denied by press officer Tony Barrow. Yet it was confirmed by Apple executive Jeremy Banks. Tony Barrow said, Tony Banks said the Royal Albert Hall has definitely Tony not- Banks. Sorry. I said Tony Banks. <laughs> Tony That'd Banks. be cool. <laughs> That'd be very cool. Tiny Barrow, Tony Barrow, said, the Royal Albert Hall has definitely not been booked. The Beatles want to do some sort of live show, but it is almost certain to be before a special audience of 500. But Jeremy Banks said, the report was true. It's possible they'll do a concert there, and it's possible they won't. <laughs> um, this is wonderful. Tony Barrow, Jeremy Banks. You would wonder what Tony Banks thought, but perhaps it's a bit too soon to ask. Um, having seen, again, Get Back and the, um, is capricious the right word, nature of the Beatles in terms of trying to make uh, decisions, mm. you can rewind back to September, October, when they are trying to decide whether or not they're going to do a show. And just imagine that all those conversations that we're familiar with of shall we do an amphitheatre or shall we do a boat? And they can't even decide on which of the many venues in London that probably would have been happy to facilitate them. Um, You can just see where this is going. Absolutely. It's a complete foreshadowing of, of what we get in the get back sessions. The other thing that's interesting about this is that it's Paul is the one that is sort of consistently... Uh, you know, when they do manage to get a Beatle to say anything, it's Paul mm. that, that, is, that is making the running here. But yes, the decision making is all over the place. And clearly different people are being press officers and executives are being get, given different stories um, to go out. On a side note, in that same article of uh, in Melody Maker on the 12th of October, they confirmed that a bonus LP would be released by Christmas featuring four new numbers and a George Harrison track and a side of George Martin's music from the Yellow Submarine film. So they're already anticipating this soundtrack is coming out before the White Album. You know, they're, they're pre, pre-announcing yeah. the next but one album. Uh, and they also announced that Frida Kelly had given birth to a son. It's all go in the Beatles universe. It's all go in the Beatles nice. universe. Um, on the 18th of October... John and Yoko are busted. So that is something that happens in that same time frame. Again, all before the White Album comes out. Uh, And yeah, and they are still spending an awful lot of October getting the White Album finished. They have their famous 24-hour session where they sequence the album. So that's around the um, third week in October 1968. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And to be honest, that is where all their attention correctly should be lying, is to get this behemoth of an album over the line and it really seems that it must have been wishful thinking that they were going to suddenly 
you know, finish the album on Friday, turn up at the office on Monday and start prepping for a show. Now, I guess with 21st century eyes, of course, people would then tour an album or play an album live. But at this point, and maybe it's to do with how we see the Beatles career um, all these years later, that they had the live years and they had the studio years. But it is hard to see how that was going to happen. As you say, Yoko is pregnant. Yoko is quite unwell with her pregnancy. They're getting busted. There is a very different dynamic happening within the band. It's hard to know how all these things are actually going to happen. Yeah, I mean, we when we watched Get Back, we were sort of marvelling at the fact that, you know, oh my God, it's only six weeks since they put out the White Album. And now they're talking yeah. about doing a live show and recording, uh, you know, new tracks, etc. But they were actually talking about doing the live shows while they were still recording the White Album. You know, this was obviously going to be a big promotional thing for that album. But by the time you get to January 1969 and we're watching Get Back, the White Album is in the rearview mirror. Yeah. You know, that seems so far in the past. Hey Jude seems years earlier than than the get back sessions you know what they look like even and and what they're playing and their 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 approach so yeah they the the focus seems to have been get the album out then we'll do this live show and it it doesn't go beyond that i mean there's no sense that they're fixed on a venue uh they're fixed on what it's going to be is it going to be an intimate show um, a couple of hundred people is it going to be four and a half thousand seats is it going to benefit a charity? <laughs> As you say, it, it, if you had film cameras in the White Album sessions, it would be a, a prequel to what, what yeah. is happening in January 69. But it is one of those things that as Beatle fans, I think it's a maybe a fallacy that we sometimes get into that the way we look at the story, it's almost like the clock seems to reset every January the 1st. <laughs> that, you know, we have, you know, 66 revolver year, 67 Sergeant Pepper colourful clothes yeah. year, 68, you know, uh, you know, White Album year, 69, the clock resets. Whereas, you know, if uh, Get Back had started on the 1st of July and the White Album had come out in May, which is exact same kind of timeline, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of think of it like that. You think, oh, that's insane. <laughs> it's mad. It's absolutely mad. Yeah. And everything else is happening around them. So, for example, the day the White Album is released, 22nd November 1968, that is the day that Linda and Heather move into Cavendish Avenue. <laughs> So on the day that the album comes out, Paul is setting up home with his future wife and and stepchild. Yoko suffers her miscarriage the day before the White Album comes out. So all of these things are happening in in their universe. And the prospect of them actually being able to pull something together, you know, by, by December seems utterly insane. And in fact, that, that is sort of confirmed in the NME on the 30th of November, so eight days after the White Album comes out. The NME announced that the Roundhouse is no longer considered as a venue and it puts the December dates in jeopardy. Paul, again, gives a statement, but he says it's entirely possible that these concerts could take place in Liverpool. Yes. That's another twist. (laughs) It's another twist. But that's where we're going to leave it, folks, because as we get ever closer to a concert that doesn't happen, 
We still have another episode to discuss all of what's going to happen, such as the nothing is real way. Um, We remain available in all the usual places. We're uh, on the website at www.nothingisrealpod.com, the X account at BeatlesPod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, uh, Instagram, Mastodon, all the fun places. Uh, And we've also got our personal accounts. You can say hi. And we have um, our email address, nothingisrealpod at uh, outlook.com I had to remind myself of that and you can join our mailing list on the website as well but we are going to go back into what happens at the end of 1968 in part two next week but for now I'm Jason Carty I'm Stephen Cockcroft and this has been Nothing Is Real thanks for listening Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.